Hello, everybody. Welcome to 15 Minutes, a podcast about fame or whatever the heck we want to talk about. Episode 53. I'm Jamie Berger. Many of you are expecting part two of my conversation with Beth Lissick. That is going to come to you next episode because something time sensitive has come up. Uh, You may recall that last time we spoke, I was hoping to have talked some about the current post-Aziz Ansari segment of the Me Too movement revolution and all of the whirlwind that surrounded these past couple weeks. But I failed because I had too many words, couldn't fit them in the intro to a podcast. Well, lo and behold, my old friend and author and public intellectual Dan Oppenheimer called me up needing to talk about just those same issues, and so we recorded a conversation. Uh, We had a blog called Masculinity and Its Discontents of All Things in the Valley Advocate here in our little valley for a few years, about a decade ago. He is the author of Exit Right, The People Who Left the Left and Reshaped the American Century, if you'd like to know more about that and about Dan and about his feelings about fame, because we don't talk about fame, go back to episode 11. Dan and I talked for a long time. Those of you who've, who've wanted episodes to be shorter, this isn't your episode. Those who have asked me for them to be longer and less edited, this is your episode. Let me know what you think. Among the topics we discuss are patriarchy, racism, Me Too, porn, the toxicity of social media, child-rearing, male feminism, puritanism, virtue signaling, high school sex, bad dates, and parking in the deep spot. Daniel Oppenheimer and I spoke on the phone last Friday, January 26th, 2018. Hey, Dan. Hey. So, <laughs> last week, you left me a voicemail. Would you like to start off by talking about what spurred that? Sure. I think so. I was listening. I was, it was, I was listening in the car to the latest episode of your podcast, and I, if I remember this correctly, you prefaced it with a whole thing about how you had spent a whole bunch of time trying to formulate your thoughts on... Aziz Ansari, hashtag Me Too, et cetera, et cetera. But you came to the conclusion that um, you couldn't do it effectively or had, you hadn't yet found a way to do it effectively in podcast form, in monologue form. And so you were going to kind of defer it. You were going to try and write some of it out and not address it on the podcast, except in the sort of meta way that you were doing at that point. And then I think you moved on to your interview and so I, I have a lot of thoughts about, as, as everyone else does about these things, um, but I didn't want to voice them or enter them into the fray on, I think you'd mentioned that your Facebook page was a space where you had, some folks were talking about these things and I didn't want to participate in that. So I wanted to just call you. I wanted to, and also there's something uh, exciting about listening to somebody on a podcast 
and then calling them and talking to them in person. I do that sometimes with my brother. Ah. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> yes. I wanted to do that with you too. Yes. And, but yeah, I didn't want to. I didn't want to do it on Facebook. Right. And you spoke of the therapeutic uh, detriment of doing it on Facebook and the benefit you might get from talking to me instead in terms of your blood pressure. And what I had experienced was all week from the day the first the the original article uh in babe came out i went down a really obsessive rabbit hole uh with all of the takes i read 30 or so articles i took reams of notes and i was very excited to introduce the bethlistic episode with my my incredible take <laughs> on the whole thing and then I went to try to do it, and I looked at my reams of notes, and I recorded twice, and they were each introductions that were over an, a half hour long, and they each <laughs> didn't begin. Yeah, they didn't begin to say what I wanted, and so I thought I would just write a little essay. Uh, but I think when you called me, I was very excited because, uh. Because I think we both know that what the world needs is two middle-aged, <laughs> overeducated, straight white men talking about the Me Too movement. Well, I thought you were going to say we were excited because <laughs> it was it, we were going to briefly resurrect the spirit of collaboration and, and, and creativity that animated our, our, our blog, Masculinity and Its Discontents, from a, a previous life of both of ours. That was the second excitement, I have to admit, uh, because I do feel like as much as I joke about our having a, a worthwhile take, I, I do feel like it's at least a little worthwhile and a take. So what were your what were your feelings last week and how did you get uh, how did you respond to the whole uh, story and feedback and backlash and lashing out about Aziz. Well, I mean, I think like you, but maybe maybe with a lesser degree of intensity, I've been following all this stuff and all, all the stuff, you know, I guess what was like, what, did it really start with the Harvey Weinstein stuff? Sure. Louis, whole, Louis and Harvey. He, yeah. Louis and Harvey. Yeah, I think, but I think Harvey preceded Louis. Yeah. Um, and I, and I suppose I've been sort of wrestling at the at, at, as a lot of people are at, at the the borders of somewhere between I, I don't know who's who's further on the you know towards Harvey Weinstein who's one notch to the left of Aziz Ansari like I've been at I've been at that border right where where uh, maybe Louis or something like that um, is there a point at which it 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 goes beyond I mean nobody's really arguing with it with the fact that. Somebody like Harvey Weinstein or Bill Cosby or one of these people that that it's horrendous that it's you know that all sorts of systems and institutions of power and privilege have been propping up you know propping up ways that those people could perpetrate their evils right i mean none, none of us are really arguing with no, that. none of none of my friends are <laughs> right yeah. right, yeah. I mean, that's a pretty easy case, right? Yes. And that that and, that patriarchy exists and has propped up bad, awful, horrendous behavior for a long, long time. Um, so, so, so that granted, um, and I think most of us were pretty happy to see um, Harvey get his his comeuppance. Um, 
by the same token, just just because of where I am politically or or temperamentally, we're at a period in which there is a great deal on social media, in the media, in our personal lives, in our work lives, um, where there's an enormous amount of attention to to not just kind of explicit horrendous evils and, and not just Harvey Weinstein and gender and race and sexual assault but or I'm sorry gender and sexual assault but 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 terrible racism and people who are just kind of blatant racists like Donald Trump and certainly the people some of the people who support him but we're also sort of looking at at, at we're slicing uh we're slicing up ideas of racism and sexism and prejudice finer and finer and 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 more and more implicit and more and more you know evident not in anything somebody says or some action they take that's explicitly awful but in the in the effects in microaggressions and all of those things and i find a lot of that stuff um pretty problematic um i find i find a lot of uh, a lot of the ways that people are talking about those things problematic, and maybe in a more visceral way, we just seem to be in a period where there's an enormous amount of um, just accusing going on, right? Uh, accusing of these things, um, and 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 using those frames as a way to kind of uh, feel self-righteous, have the moral high ground, um, vent some sort of you know, whatever. So, 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 and so that's where, so, so I think, you know, like a lot of those people who sometimes use words like political correctness or they say identity politics in a way that's critical, I think I saw what was happening with, you know, in the aftermath of Harvey Weinstein and all this stuff and was kind of waiting for it to go further in that direction. It, it seemed inevitable in light of all of the dynamics that were going on that we were going to start there, but we were going to move, we were going to creep further and further out towards a point at which it was like, well, wait a second, is this, it's not an easy case anymore. And Aziz Ansari, I mean, part of the reason why it's gotten so much attention is precisely because it's almost like we were all waiting for that to happen. And, and it finally happened. It was right at that border and, and on one side or the other of it, depending on your perspective. I think you probably know that I'm going to disagree with you on a lot of what you just said. Yes, I do. I think what's problematic. I have a Trump. I have a Trump, I have a Trump <laughs> card on that. I think what's <laughs> I what I find problematic last week is the what I found is a lot of men who wouldn't accept that there is now a discussion that has to be had about what was claimed in that piece about the bad date and a few weeks ago uh the incredible backlash to the new yorker story cat person as attacking men it was another bad date story and it was about a very unreliable narrator woman and her bad experience and people treated it as if it was the author's attack on men and then, lo and behold, a few weeks later, wait, like the the the, <laughs> the this a real life or a supposed real life story happens, and my problem is with the men who are like, I won't address this issue because the story is badly done and might not be true. And I don't think that's I don't think that matters anymore. Aziz will deal with it. You can feel bad for him or not, but I don't think it's about damning people the way we did with Harvey and with Louis. 
I think this is about getting men to actually think, oh, shit, what have I done like that? And that's so important. Yeah, I agree. I Well, I'm not sure. If, I'm sure we disagree about a lot of things. I don't disagree <laughs> with anything you said. Like, okay. like, I think it's important for men to talk about these things, I think, even though I don't think – I think it was wrong – to out Aziz Ansari in that way, and it was kind of a violation of his privacy for actions that that don't. And I'm and I'm, from my reading, and I'm reading what is more or less we can assume the the perspective of the woman who went on in this date with him. Don't don't justify that. That 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 you should be able to be be a dick or a douche, which it sounds like he was, if we take that narrative at face value, and not and not be the the subject of that kind of public outing. So all of that said, if you agreed with me on that, I still agree this is something we should be talking about. I just read the cat person uh, story this morning in anticipation of this phone call. I'm shocked that that was – that people complained about it for that. I didn't read it as an attack on men in any way. It seemed like a really – you know, it seemed like a really good way of talking about these things. Fiction is, is often a really the, – the best possible way to talk about these things or explore these things in a sort of complicated, nuanced way. I literally finished the story, stood up, uh, the cat person, walked into the kitchen. I was like, that was an okay New Yorker story. Went into the kitchen, and it was blowing up on NPR. Like, that moment. Like, it was a few days after it came out, even. And I was like, whoa. I guess in retrospect, I can see, and I, I think if I had read it in the context you did, I probably would have had exactly the same reaction. I guess in retrospect, I can see how maybe it, like, really poked at the you know, soft, vulnerable underbelly of a lot of men's egos, or, or maybe I should say insecurities. Um, and so I, but I, I think I would have agreed with you, right? I, I don't think if I had read that article in another context, I would have, I would have assumed that that would, it would be the source of any sort of, of controversy. Um, and perhaps it's, it's amazing that a story got all that attention, a fiction story. And that is a, maybe a better way for men to start to address it than to out as these for being a douchebag in that situation. And but it happened. And thus the conversation is happening. And it's the people who are saying it shouldn't be allowed to happen because it was an irresponsible story that are pissing me off. I mean, I think so so one thing I would say, you know, to this question of, you know, why I didn't want to go on Facebook, why I just wanted to talk to you about it. I precisely because I think we should be having conversations about this is why I don't want to participate in it in a situation in it in it on Facebook because Facebook and Twitter and this is seems to seem to me to have turned out in most cases to be horrible platforms on which to have thoughtful complicated conversations about these things in which everybody is giving each other the benefit of the doubt and and reading you know the best intentions into what into what they said and and they they seem designed to to do the opposite of that and so i you know i agree like people who don't want to have this conversation or who want to use you know, a case like Aziz Ansari's, which maybe was over the line in the other direction as a, as, a, as a way to deflect it and to just only focus on the evils of political correctness and all this stuff. Like, I'm not on their side. By the same token, it ain't just those people who are making these conversations impossible to happen. It's not a conversation if what it is is somebody posting something inflammatory about Aziz Ansari on one side of the, the ledger, or let's say on the, on the, the left wing side, more or less. Right, and then anybody who doesn't toe that line or toe that orthodoxy is totally 
kind of lambasted and, and called you know a sexist and, and all of these things. Like that's not a conversation either. That's just that's something in the vicinity of a conversation. It has political consequences, which some people might like, but it's certainly not a conversation. Can can I respond to something in the middle there? Right, before we lose it, and that is that I want to talk a little bit more about how old are you? You're forty one. Forty one. And I'm fifty three. Yeah. So we're we're kind of two different generations, kind of peers. When you just said on the left side, mm-hmm. it it isn't that isn't the way it's broken down last week. I mean, sure, there are the Mike Cernoviches, the people who I don't ever look at. What it's broken right. down that I've seen was by generation from women and men that I know. And I'm curious to ask you as a parent and of someone closer to my generation, a couple of questions. Yeah. There's one take. So what I've witnessed was second wave feminists and their allies. A lot of women, older folks, older folks responding distressed by the, by the, by people calling Ansari's behavior abusive and not just troubling and, and, and wanting to more to believe that these younger women can be more, have more agency than that. And I think part of it is that they are parents. Yes. Grow up. They're parents of adult children. They went through feminism in the seventies and, and they want to believe that these women don't put up with that anymore. And I feel like that's part of that isn't being stated. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And so it's the, distressing and, to them and their that, children that th- for all that they've gone through, for all the progress or ostensible progress we've made, there are still lots of women who who don't feel empower, sufficiently empowered to just short circuit an interaction like that. Their daughters, their daughters. I hadn't thought about it in that perspective, but I think that's a really good point and my wife and I were talking a little bit about our daughter and talking about her sometimes difficult she's 10 in just speaking up for herself right and unfortunately it's not in these kinds of contexts it's just in in the type the type of contexts um that a 10 year old encounters right and 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 that she can tend to defer to her friends or to the crowd and there was a recent situation where she spoke up and one of her friends had taken something from the store without paying for it and she said you know I really think you should you should take that back in and, and put it back or pay for it or whatever. And and my wife said, you know, I was really happy to hear that. We were really happy to hear it, you know, at the at the time, just because it was about, you know, strength of character or something like that. But we were but in but 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 in the context of all this stuff and, and we were realizing that it was also that. It was also like it was also just like I am not gonna have sex with this guy because I'll feel bad if he feels bad or something like that. Uh right. so yeah, I hadn't thought about it in that generational term. I had thought about it in generational terms more in the sense of like just the politics have shifted, right? And and the expect I mean that's clearly the case, right? The younger younger the younger generation has much, much what, higher expectations or different expectations of what they should be protected from or what they should not have to deal with. Something like that, right? Or, yeah, I would say in a dating situation, not protected from so much as what they won't put up with anymore and what men should learn to know better than to do. Well, it's not quite they won't put – they won't put up – if they wouldn't put up with it, back to your point, 
it probably wouldn't be such an issue. Part of it is that they don't want they don't want to have to encounter it, right? They're trying to they're trying to preempt it. They're trying to sort of preempt it in the sort of political ideological space so that they don't have to encounter it in the sort of interpersonal space. I don't and I don't mean that in a pejorative sense, just trying to figure out Right. No, no. And I meant that they should gain more empowerment. Men should should do better and women should be more empowered than they are to Agreed. And I think in a sense, we all agree on that as the desired outcome, but there's a lot of profound disagreement about what's the best way to get there. Look, I think some of the the older people or the people who have been critical of the outing of Aziz Ansari and, and some of what they perceive of as these excesses are saying that actually the way that the younger folks are going about it makes actually makes women less empowered, right? Yeah, that is what the older crowd is arguing. Yes, that's what they are alleging. Right? Is that it's not, it's not really that they disagree with the outcome, what the desired outcome is. They say that basically we're making, we're disempowering people. That that's the that's the effect of this approach. And I assume, I mean that that perspective is easier for me to inhabit because it's probably more the one that I inhabit. I assume the 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 charge from the other side is no, is that it's all part of the same thing, that 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 when people like me or some of the people we've read, Caitlin Flanagan in the Atlantic or something like that, or there was that piece in the Times, that what we're doing is we're shielding men from accountability and sort of and, and, and preventing them from getting better. And also we're not empowering. And I want to say though, but there were a lot of great takes by women who are not claiming that that was a was a uh, a legitimate piece to write, but just that the conversation now needs to be had now that it's out there. But what I haven't seen anywhere, I maybe the first time I've ever said something that a men's movement fucker is gonna like, which is what the take in general is that men are raised to push and push and push to get laid, women are raised to acquiesce. I grew up Albany, New York in the 70s and 80s. Uh, for reasons that are too complicated to go into here, my, my liberal public school, university educator parents sent me to a conservative private all-boys school in Albany across the street from a conservative private all-girls school in Albany. The girls and boys were not raised exactly the way everyone is assuming they are. In that, the only way anybody had sex men boy or girl, we were boys and girls, of course, was to push it. But not just because of rape culture raising men a certain way. Mothers, fathers too, but probably more mothers because fathers are such mutes, not you, but in, in that day, were even the most liberal mother was telling her daughter, if you're going to have sex, if you really like him, still say no at first. So you have the moral high ground. And that is why I am being petty and bitter and want them to get their comeuppance. Because I took no as no in <laughs> high school. And after high school, some of those girls were like, you know, we could have got together. And I was like, what do you mean? You said no. I know. No, and, and right. And so a few things. I'm exactly the same person, right? I didn't push. and I, But I was aware, I became aware over time that... By not pushing, I was not participating in that particular dance, right? And I was not getting um, sex, <laughs> just to put it bluntly. Like I wasn't getting sex that I otherwise 
would have had and that and that like you said that that women wanted to have right um but it's not just that you know it wasn't i mean it's even more complicated than you'll have the moral high ground that that's part of the attraction right of some women to some men is the is the aggression right and so it's it's even the fact of you know there's probably some sex i didn't have where the woman actually wanted to and was just waiting for me to push it but there's probably sex i didn't have where it was right on the mar- i was on the wrong side of the border and if i had just been a more I was on the wrong side of border in terms of her attraction to me. But if I had been a little bit more confident, aggressive, she would have been that much more attracted, and that would have made something happen. And and frankly, th- and this is another generational thing to some extent. It doesn't almost everybody get to the age of forty or fifty who's had a, like a reasonably like some kind of sexual life. Like know this. Like don't we all just know this? Isn't this something that like twenty-two-year-olds don't know? Always, though sometimes they do, and forty and fifty year olds know that like human desire is complicated. And in a better world, people will talk about what they want more and what they don't want, and that's the goal here. Yes, in a better world, people would talk about more what they want, but but you know when you get into the sort of complexities of eroticism, and this, I don't know if you've listened to like Esther Perel stuff at all, but Esther Perel, she's a therapist. She talks about sex and marriage and infidelity, and and she talks about the difficulty of ma- maintaining an erotic charge in a long-term marriage, and she talks about the importance of mystery. And there's all of these things that are like involved in eroticism, right? Like mystery, like uncertainty, aggression, power, all of these things, you know. And and you can't you can't eliminate them. Like in a better world, we would all talk about these things. We would be more sophisticated about them. We would, you know. We you we would all be better at reading the difference between a kind of you know resistance that's part of that dynamic and a resistance that's discomfort and and lack of desire and all of those things. But they wouldn't be they wouldn't go away. Like it wouldn't go away that it's hot to have like illicit sex in one way or another. Like it wouldn't go away that sometimes aggression and power are really hot. Like that's just I mean like. I don't like I'll stop just short of saying it's biology, but it's it, it's 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 a lot closer. Like the answer biology is a lot better answer than just to that that kind of thing than patriarchy, I think. Not that that doesn't play a role, too. But but those things won't all go away. And I think most of us, unless we're self-deluded in one way or another, by the time we're we're, you know, in our 40s or 50s, we know that about, you know, human relationships and sexual relationships. And also, you know, it's not just age, like go to people who are part of, you know, one of the kink communities. And you've written about this and you know some of these folks, right? Like so much of that is about playing with all those sorts of things. Something about talking to you always lets me let out my aggressions regarding Terry Gross or Mark Maron, both of whom, both of whom are geniuses. (laughs) Okay. But uh, Esther Perel was on Terry Gross and it got really great up to about 25 minutes and and she was going deep into to, to couples counseling and then terry got prudish and skipped to her he was like so you were raised by holocaust survivors They're like, just snap okay, that's over <laughs> too much yeah. for me um uh, it, it was getting really good and i'd like to listen or read her more i don't remember exactly where you just were but i wanted to tell you a story that the other day uh i uh a, a yeah. polyamorous female friend of mine who's younger said she was talking to an older woman friend of hers who has a teenager, and 
the older woman friend was telling my friend that her daughter, who's a teenager, had just come out to her. And then the older woman said, so I guess that ruins or ends sleepovers. And my friend was like, that just doesn't make sense. It's like, <laughs> because now a kid could be safely sexual in the home with her peers. That's where I think the system fails early, like in all political bents. Like you're not supposed to ever have sex. Yeah, and I'd like it's funny. I, I, my wife and I haven't talked about that too much. I think we would probably be on the same page with you, and it'll be interesting, you know, when our kids get to that age, how we negotiate that. You're just talking about actually talking to kids about what kind of healthy sexuality would be like in a sort of normal, organic way that that, that made all of this better. Uh, which, yeah, I, I mean, philosophically, I agree with you. I have to want to see how I handle it when we get to that point. I was thinking about something. So this is, I don't think this is too much of a detour, but I was one of the, the Times piece said, you know, there's a name for what happened with Ansari. You know, Ansari, it's called bad sex, right? Wasn't that the, the one that said that? That's been, you know, it's not sexual assault, yeah. it's bad sex. And I was thinking about the TV show Girls. Did you watch Girls at all? Only like a half dozen episodes. Because there was some of this kind of, you know, I saw some of this sort of division and opinion about, particularly in the early season of Girls. But from my perspective, what a lot of what Girls was about was these young women just out of college, you know, dating, having sex. And a lot of it was like bad, right? Like a lot of it was bad sex. A lot of it was awkward. There was stuff that felt exploitative and icky and... And I, a lot of the critics of it struck me or, – or not critics who were criticizing it, but, but actually people who liked it but were doing the think pieces on it were talking about some of the characters in moralistic ways that I thought were, was totally wrong about what the show was doing. I thought what the show was doing, and who knows? Like I, This is just my take on it. I thought part of what it was saying was just trying to normalize the idea that like young women go through all of these things and make a lot of mistakes and are with a lot of gross guys. And it's not that those things aren't gross and bad, but it's just growing up, right? It's just that's what you do in your 20s. And that, and that actually, and I, and I thought in, in certain ways, and it was actually pretty empathetic towards men too, that some of the male characters were kind of doing the same thing. And somebody, you know, and if you sliced out one moment in the bedroom, they could look like a total sexist jerk. But then when you actually spend enough time with them over the course of a season, you saw that all of these people on both sides and, and gay and straight and men and women were all just kind of figuring this stuff out. And making a lot of mistakes along the way and hurting each other in a lot of ways, but that that was just – that's all there is, right? That's the only option, and and I thought it was kind of wise and profound in that way, and, 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 and so to your point like about kind of teaching kids and doing a lot better at talking to them about sexuality, like I do think we could do a lot better. I don't think we can get rid of that part. That's just like growing up, right? Like maturity comes through like – trying things and making mistakes and being hurt and hurting other people and taking responsibility and all of those things. And it's not that as a, as a sort of evasion of responsibility for when you really cross the line. But I think there is some value. And this is kind of where the, you know, Aziz Ansari stuff comes in. Like there's some value in providing a sphere for people to just um, make mistakes and hurt people and be hurt. That's not, pathologized in the same way or, or 
or uh, not, I mean, it's not quite criminalized, but not talked about in the same way that we talk about Harvey Weinstein. Right. But I think you, I think you, you were great with almost everyone until that last phrase, because I think what's made so many of the people saying this is a worthy conversation based on that article are saying that no one is lumping what Aziz did with Harvey Weinstein. And here's where we get to the topic of my actual podcast. Well, when you're famous, shit happens. And people are, if you make someone feel bad and, and, and they don't feel like they, I'm not justifying her telling the story or not, but it's an avenue that someone who's pissed off has that you have to deal with. And Aziz, his career, as a lot of great articles have said, his career is not ending. We have to separate out Aziz Ansari as a symbol and the actual. I don't give a shit about the actual Aziz Ansari. Like, I never, I didn't like that show much. He's not a particularly appealing character to me. Like, I don't actually give a shit. I'm not worried about his career, even if it were done. Louis is a different story, but like, it's, 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 you know, him as a, as a symbol or a sort of case study of what we're talking about. I don't think people are saying it's the same thing as I, I think that's a, that's a little too glib. Yes. People aren't saying it's the same thing as Harvey Weinstein, but they're, but they're talking about it in the same breath and they're saying it's part of this same system of, of patriarchal oppression or exploitation. I mean, they are saying that yeah. and I'm not saying it's not, but I'm saying it's still important to, you know, in the, in the way that I would grant, you know, the people who say, okay, well, whatever you think about this particular case, it's a useful conversation, some room to make that case. I think we should also recognize that the people who are pushing back might be serving a really useful role too. And the people who are forcing everyone to draw finer distinctions might be playing an important role. And the ones who kind of think we can just take that for granted might be a little bit naive about the way all these things can go and play out. Oh, I, I agree completely. It's just the people who say it shouldn't be a conversation that are pissing me off. Because his privacy was violated, we can't have this conversation. He was just a bad date, and so I'm not going to talk to you about this because because it wasn't fair to poor, to Aziz. Oh. And that just pisses. <laughs> that makes me want to scream. Hey, let's kick this, because this is a reunion of our of masculinity and its discontents, our podcast. Our, Our blog. blog, yes. It, it would have been a podcast if it had happened five years, you know, ten years later or something like that. But anyway, yeah. And we can we can do semi-annual check-ins like this. The topic hasn't gone away. Yeah, and since December, I've started speaking on my own for ten or fifteen minutes at the beginning of each episode, and I've been apologizing. And you, you pissed me off. We'll, we'll talk about that. You compared me to people who I don't like. I did. Um. Uh, yes, uh, yes, you, you, to Hugo Schweitzer and, and the, the, the male feminists. But the, my question, my bigger question is how to act as an ally. I, I mean, on Twitter, I have been, I have been listening and learning. I was, I've been scolded by Andy Zeisler for, for, for kind of saying a not all men and scolded's the wrong word. It's such, it's such a gendered word, uh, women's gold i've been taken to task right 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 criticized yeah uh by someone else for apologizing for all men which was i, I didn't mean to do but i kind of was and it was idiotic how to be an ally i hate that term i think i hate that term because it's it's a good term because we understand what it means right and i think you and i both agree that that 
you know, there is a way in which men who are who are hoping to be supportive of you know feminist causes um, shouldn't be central, right? And and, and so it, it implies that in a way that's useful. Um, I just don't like the term because of what it's become, because it, it basically means. You know, I think what it has come to mean within you know social justice circles or, or circles where it's used frequently is it means something. It means subordinate oneself to a degree that I think is is kind of not useful and kind of toxic and messed up in all sorts of ways. So it's it's not the word itself. It's just that that perspective. Like I I. I don't think – yeah, I think it's bad. I, I think it's going to make everything harder. Um, I think all of the – it's not that we should be immune from criticism or, or argumentation, but I think you know, that those particular angles where people are saying – framing it as you need to be an ally, you need to listen, you need to stop. You know, I, I got a – it was on a race thing. You know, Oh, here, here it wasn't five minutes, but you know, not – not all white people, you know, not all men, right? I mean, ha- I, I'm sure it's a hashtag, or it's probably five different hashtags, right? I don't see any usefulness to that. I think it's like, I think it alienates people, but I also just think it's morally wrong. Like, I just don't think that's that's the orientation we want to have towards each other in a like pluralistic society towards ours. That you you are not entitled to be heard um, because you're white because you're a man because you're a woman because you're black because you're gay because you're straight i think it just divides people it sort of makes the conversation you know uh, uh, it excludes people it makes the conversation a, sometimes a contest between who can claim the most legitimacy from that perspective like i do not want to be above criticism like i do not think that anything about me means that that my word should be taken as as more valid or intrinsically valid because i'm a white man but I don't want to be asked to be an ally and then told to shut up. Like that just seems disrespectful to me. Um, it seems fundamentally disrespectful, and it seems it seems strategically stupid. But it seems just not the attitude we should have towards each other in a democratic, pluralistic society. So that doesn't answer the question of what it means to be an ally. Like there's there's all sorts of things. I I agree with all that, and yet earlier this year and last year, and when I had Andy Zeisler on the show, I was really on a kick where. On Facebook, I saw a lot of men who could stand to subordinate themselves and shut up for a decade. Of course. And so at first, I was like, that's what we should do. And she kind of patiently let me say it. But I could tell. And another woman, a woman of color who's a young friend of mine, was talking to me and saying, that is not what the world needs. We need white men who are willing to speak but also listen but also learn how to speak uh and learn how to not say actually and 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 explain and correct but those two particular women how and you're saying one of them has now come in and sort of criticized you for the way you've done this so like yes i agree the world needs white men to, to to do all of these things but our allies right so if they want to be an ally to us in that effort, then they have to I, I don't they can't assume a, a um stance of moral superiority, right? That like that's not I don't think that's not how they should be an ally either. And if they and it just doesn't all square, I guess is what I'm saying, which is there's it's an impossible task, basically. Like it's an it's an impossible task unless you are sophisticated enough about the orthodoxy and 
willing to sort of adhere to it strictly, right? So if you learn the language, if you learn the terminology and the concepts, and you're willing to articulate them precisely out in the world publicly, and those are the circumstances under which you will be supported and validated by your feminist allies or your allies of color, I, that doesn't sound like a recipe for anything good. Like that's a recipe for creating I, – I don't even know what you'd call that person. There's plenty of them. You see them on social media all the time, but it's not a full human being. Like it's not a, it's not a fully functioning and creative intellect. Like it's somebody who's just sort of handed their, their intellect and moral sense over to a particular set of ideas that are dominant among a certain set of people at a given time. Do you, dis- do you disagree with that? No, I just think you're asking for a degree of reason <clears throat> that I don't think women and people of color have reason, a degree of generosity that I don't think is they're feeling right now with a lot of good reasons. Fair enough, but, but you're asking how do you be an ally. So fair enough that, that, that they that, – fine, don't ask – don't hold them responsible for being a perfect ally. But I think it still points to the answer to the question of how, how we should behave, which is we should behave like we want to be sort of you know, fully autonomous, creative, reflective human beings and human intellects. We should act as though – you know as though that would be how we were treated in the world and if and if and if it's unfair to expect of people who've been beaten down by history and society and white men for years or generations or centuries that they you know give us that space that we need and and maybe it's utterly unfair that's fine you know and and but but that doesn't tell us how we should behave we shouldn't orient ourselves towards their justified and understandable hurt in that way, I don't. I guess I say I don't think. I don't think they meant. I don't think they mean it. I think when those when those two people said to you, you know, we need you out there saying all these things. I I don't think they really want you out there saying what you believe. One of them really did. One of them really did. Okay. I, I think you're right about the the more famous one. The more famous one maybe didn't, but is also very uh, conflicted about it and doesn't want me to be silent either. Um. I, one of the problems with social media is, and this is my last social media anecdote, is that is that the men who show up are the wrong ones. <laughs> uh, a, a, a woman friend reposted an article that was I'll, – I'll cite it at the end. Another really good one that talked about how this is – my argument, that this is a conversation we need to have because this is – not just a normal experience. It's many women's – the bulk of their experience. And this guy posted who I don't know. He, we have one friend in common. It's the woman who posted the thing. He was from Alaska. And he wrote – and he and I looked through his pictures. There's a picture of him with a feminist T-shirt on. And he's like, I am an ally. But you have to understand that men go through this every day too. And every man I know has been uh, – treated this way the way as he's treated that woman every man he knows (laughs) right and i wrote back i and then i blocked him i wrote back no no what you're saying is false (laughs) there is no statistical way that what you're saying is true and you're not being anyone's ally by claiming an equivalency here and those are the guys who show up and thus thus the feminist women are you know like (laughs) it's hard to 
No, yeah, and I don't. That's what's so hard, I think, in all these things to like, you know, find a center, which is, yeah, all of those things they're saying, you know, there's so much truth to them, right? I mean, I just think about a term like mansplaining or something like that, you know, and, and once that word came into the world, it was like, oh, yeah, right? Like, that's a thing. Um, and um, everybody read Rebecca Solnit. Go ahead. What were you going to say? That is, she's the one who coined, coined the phrase, right? I just jumped in there to say, to say, yeah, and she's she's great. And you're like, oh yeah, that's that's the thing, and that was an interesting one, of course, because that's actually a situation where, although the phenomenon is one that's you know predominantly men mansplaining to women, mansplainers actually mansplain to everyone, right? So like, unless you are a mansplainer and you're always in the position of mansplaining, then you've been mansplained too, as a man, not as egregiously and not as often. But, 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 freak, but frequently, you know, frequently enough that it's that it's, um, and that's so profoundly true and captures something that's so true about relationship between the genders. At the same time, if you're on social media and you're trying to have an argument and somebody throws it, you like, I don't need you mansplaining. Like, what? That's like, what? Uh, that doesn't do anything. Like, oh, it does something. It just it ends the argument, right? It ends the argument because there's no coming back from that. So it's totally toxic in that context. But it's also profoundly true as a terminology and i think at the same time yeah where we are right now in our conversation about this and i've kind of written about this recently to some extent about white privilege discourse is we have all these these theoretical concepts that capture something profoundly true but it's a mistake and sometimes a really severe mistake to then assume that applying that frame to everything in the world is a good idea or appropriate, right? Like white privilege, you know, when that idea was developed and, and you know, if you've ever read Peggy McIntosh's essay that sort of talks about the invisible knapsack and all those things, and you read all those things and, and, and so much of it makes so much sense just as a way of understanding, a frame for understanding the world, right? She wrote this essay. I think this is where the, the, the term was coined, where she talks about how sort of, and it was not a, it was sort of for students, I think, and it was to help them kind of con conceptualize it, but that it, it's that white people are walking around in the world with this invisible knapsack, and in it are all the privileges, right? All the, that they can go into a store, all these sort of negative privileges in a way, like they can go into store and not be followed around and not presumed to be criminal in some way, that they can move into a neighborhood and nobody you know, thinks anything of it that 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 you you can have a conversation about what it is to be human, and there's this kind of default uh, white person that sort of pops in, right? And all of that that's a really useful, powerful concept. That doesn't mean that that's the right concept, for instance, to be doing diversity training with undergraduate students at school. It doesn't mean that it's the right frame when you're having a discussion or an argument with somebody about something about race and you know it's a good idea to lob the the uh, critique of white privilege even though by definition that person if they're white has some degree of white privilege and even though that might be true theoretically technically like we're in this space where if we when we come up with these concepts i think about racism and sexism and homophobia and all of these things where there's this, this immediate leap from like something that's like conceptually true, theoretically true, to just we should just extrapolate outward forever in terms of our strategies. That's what we can say to people about what they're doing. That's how we or the ideas around which we should structure activities and workshops and organizing. 
and it just doesn't always – sometimes it's a really bad idea. Um, I, think, I think that's where we are in a lot of, with a lot of these things. I understand how it's a really bad idea to say – to have someone end a conversation in effect by saying stop mansplaining. But how is, how is using those – what are the situations where that would be a bad idea though? To use the theory in explaining to college students the knapsack, you know, of white privilege, it seems like pretty straightforward. Well, let's see. Um, I just wrote about this a little bit. I mean, I can give some examples. So there was there was actually a, you know, there was a, I was I was um, kind of got started on writing this. Where did you write about this? It just came went up like a week or two ago. It's on the the point, and uh, it's called White Folks. And so I was writing about a book by a guy who's a, a left wing professor at the University of Minnesota, and one of the founders of a group called the Midwest Critical Whiteness Collective. Right. So you can tell like from that these are like these are serious bona fide lefties. Right. These are people who are all on board with all of the you know prevailing ideas about from you know academia about you know race and class and and gender and all of these things. Um, but they were – they're primarily um, education professors. They're teachers and teachers of teachers. And what they had found over the years of, of using this, this particular essay and this frame was – one of the things they found was that um, it was a really ineffective way of getting um, certain – so a few things. It was a really ineffective way. It created resistance in people who who – to the ideas of kind of racial fairness and equality in people who could have been reached by other means. It put them on the defensive. Um, it was not, I mean, there's all sorts of specific critiques of the essay. Like the essay is really good in certain ways, but it's, it's pretty like sloppy in other ways. Um, their bigger critique is it actually, you know, and, and this gets pretty psychological, but their experience was that it actually did not point beyond itself in, in, in practice. It did not point beyond itself to actually organizing for racial progress, that they were saying the, the point of the way that things tended to be structured around that essay was that confession of privilege itself was the action that was desired. There's even a sentence that's like that. The, the, the confession itself was what sort of like, you know, whatever, like Catholic confession or something like that sort of purged you at least temporarily of, of you know, of your sin of, of privilege. And then, and then in, in a way, they came to believe that it actually um, – disarmed an orientation, very self-focused. Um, so it actually disarmed an orientation towards taking on larger structures of privilege and power. So that, I mean, that's just an example. So they came to the conclusion, again, these are people whose you know, professional intellectual lives are committed to racial equality, who ended up concluding that that particular frame, though it had some theoretical value and, and had, you know, and they were very nice to it and had done a lot to sort of open up a whole field and all of these things, that it actually was not, the, it was not a good one for getting college students to see themselves as part of a larger movement of towards kind of racial progress and fairness and to participate in that. You're saying at, at its best, it got them to apologize and feel better about themselves. At its best, it got them to apologize and feel better about themselves. That's right. Right, which is what I could be accused of in some of these introductions lately. I mean, the other thing they said, you know, they didn't say this, and I guess this is what I said. I shouldn't put it on them, which is um, it is really, I think it's really easy to slip from these frames of white privilege and white supremacy to talking about white people 
as a as a, a class in a way that would be horrifically racist if we talked about any other race. And I think it's a habit of thought that's dangerous um, to the larger project. And and again, like so you have to be really careful with these things, right? Like white privilege is useful, white supremacy is useful, but you want to be really careful about slipping from that where you're talking about sort of sort of theoretical constructs or structures of power to talking about white people as all the same type of person or all guilty of the same types of prejudices or sins or whatever and you know again just to to knock on social media you see that slippage all the time right like when somebody says to you and somebody's like hashtag not another you know white guy or or um or not all you know, not all men, hashtag not all men or hashtag, you know, not all white people or something like that. Like that's, ba- that's basically what they're doing, right? Like they're basically saying you're a white person. We know so, – so, so you're a white person. You're making this argument. Therefore, we kind of know who you are, right? We know who you are by virtue of your race. And, and, and similarly, if you bring it around to what we're talking about, there's the patriarchy and then right. there are men. That's right. The patriarchy is real, but I think we want to be really careful about what we assume that means about each individual man. And I think that is just a habit of thought that's appropriate to how we think about women, how we think about black people and Hispanic people and gay people that we really want to cultivate, right, is is to be very, very careful about generalizing from the class to the individual. Um, and you know it's less damaging when it's about white people who you know holders of power by and large. But I still think it's not good, you know. And, and so, and so to say it's the leap from white privilege is a thing. Let's talk about it. Let's theorize it. To you are evincing white privilege at this moment. Like, nah, you don't really know that actually. Like in a lot of these cases, um, that that's what's happening. And and but simply by virtue of being in a conversation and being a white man, that doesn't mean that I am enacting white privilege at that moment. I might be. I might be, but 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 we shouldn't assume that, you know, in advance. Um and we should be really careful I think about all of those kind of slippages into into those. And so those are examples of how the sort of theoretical constructs can be really useful and true at that level but kind of damaging and 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 sometimes not true when they're just extrapolated outward carelessly. Thank you. Very well put. Uh, uh, I, I think that, that you know the caveat being that 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 women have reason to to assess probability <laughs> to what's going to come out of a lot of men's mouths. Maybe not make assumptions, but it's hard not to expect. Yeah, and women have the same right to be you know to make assumptions as as anyone else, and to be dicks sometimes as anyone else. And 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 again, like to your point, like. I think it's fair to you know understand that you know people from marg- one marginalized group or subordinated group or another you know have a, have have more um uh should be given more of the benefit of the doubt or or should be granted more license to err you know to to make assumptions or err or whatever um maybe than we should I think that's fair um but if the question is like, you know, what's if we're trying to understand what's useful, you know, what's helpful, and 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 also just like if we're going to make judgments about, you know, when something is 
is toxic or not or or politically hurtful or or wrong or not like you know we can still make those judgments yeah i don't know i mean how do you negotiate that particular thing i take a lot more care than i used to when i'm writing about race thinking about all these things and that's probably good i think i used i think i used to operate from a more of a position of unexamined privilege than i do now um, and so, and so, I think that I've tried to process a lot of that stuff, and 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 in fact, basically, just as to the degree that I'm a public intellectual, which is a minimal degree, but to the degree that I write about these things, like I basically shut up about a lot of this stuff for a long time while I processed it. I think that I come from almost the exact same place, except that I used to speak and think from a place of unexamined guilt. <laughs> And 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 I the response I did get from some feminists was that's that's useless. You, you have to find a way to assert something that's useful. And I don't think you know if you're in a space with this stuff where you feel like you're still figuring it out and you need to be cautious or sort of tentative in a lot of these ways because you know because of all these considerations and because you feel like you don't have you know you don't have the clarity you don't totally know what you think. And maybe in that situation, it's appropriate to, to be more deferential than you would, would be otherwise. I think that's reasonable. I guess I would feel like these are things you're interested in. I would think the goal would be to get to a point where you kind of know what you believe and are willing to state that sort of forthrightly. And I think if you got there, what you would find is, you know, you would not, you would, if you know, if you had, if you were writing things that were public, you know, you putting things out on your podcast, you'd probably get some criticism that I would think was stupid and, and unjustified. And you'd probably get other, ultimately get other comments from, you know, women, people of color, whomever, who you respected that were affirming, right? I think there's plenty of like reasonable sane people out there who aren't using these ideas as a bludgeon. Um, part of the problem with social media is, you know, there's a lot of people out there who are not very considered, you know, who I don't think are very smart about these things and I think are driven by their own particular demons or axes to grind. And, you know, not only can they say whatever they want, but there's actually a real kind of social penalty on, on, on those platforms to disagreeing with them, right? So if you're saying a bunch of stuff and then somebody calls you out for this or that, there's, there's immediately a whole group of people who won't disagree with them, right? Not only won't disagree with them if it's coming from a perspective of you know ostensible feminism or, or anti-racism or whatever. Not only won't they disagree with them, but some of them might actually feel some obligation to affirm them in some way out of fear that they had accidentally transgressed, you know, or failed to call you out prior to that or something like that. And that's a bad situation, right? And that's like, you know, and I guess you can be on social media and just hold your center and not worry about that too much. But I think there are other contexts that are less toxic in that way, right? I mean, still the world of publishing, right? The world of like magazine and newspaper publishing and things like that. Like basically, you know, you write something, you know, that's that's against the orthodoxy and like maybe there's some nasty things in the comments or something. But like basically it's pretty easy to shrug off unless you end up the subject of one of those real viral pylons. Like it's pretty easy to shrug off um, and you'll get nice emails sometimes from all sorts of people. So it's not really like, I think social media in particular is like just bad in this way. Um, there's something about it that kind of encourages, you know, a race to the bottom or something. Absolutely. 
I was going to say, so, so, so when did I compare you to Hugo Schweitzer? I want to go back to say, I, for the people who don't know <clears throat> what I was talking about when I said I was pissed off, I, you know, didn't know whether you'd been listening lately. And when I've started to, to, to talk about masculinity and feminism and, and my own little, certainly in part self-serving apologies I've been dis- dishing out, I asked you to go back and listen to to the first of those episodes in which I talk about the picture that I made an inappropriate comment on uh, and that whole interaction, which I learned from. And the goal is, yeah, I like to feel better, but I do think other men could learn from my learning. And that that's my goal. The, it wasn't Hugo Schweitzer, who everybody now knows is, <laughs> never mind, let's not even go into who he is. It, it's the other fellow based in Texas. Who's the other fellow? Bob Jensen? Bob Jensen. Super, to me, self-righteous, moralistic, anti-porn feminist. So not feminist. I wouldn't call him a feminist. He would. I know Bob. Did you know that? I know him now. We're like, we're on friendly terms. I know. And you wrote me and you said he was, a, you, say, you said he was a nice guy. And I said, I went to his reading in Amherst Books and that he seemed like a nice guy. And I didn't agree with anything he said. So I didn't like being compared to him. Yes, he wants men to feel to feel responsibility for things, and maybe that's what you meant. I guess it goes to yeah, and I, I'm, I mean yeah, something I I started writing, and I and I haven't gotten very far, but I like to go back to it. Is like when we're thinking about the potential consequences of going too far in what I see as a kind of moralistic or um, direction. This is, I think we're in a space where, where the response, you'll, you know, when, when people like me, annoying people like me, start worrying about the, you know, political correctness or are we going too far, Aziz Ansari? And, you know, and I think there's a sort of, there's a kind of quick response from people on the other side, from people on, on, the, on the left on the other side for me, which is like just this, like, this is just, what are you complaining about? Like, this is just good. Like, where we're, we're getting better, we're articulating more of the kind of, you know, deta- details and, and types of sexism and racism and things like that. And how can you be against that, right? Wouldn't it be better if we were all more aware of that, if we were all... Although, again, this week, I don't think you can say left anymore. People on the left are coming out really against that. The older, the older feminists. Right. I need a word for it, right? But it, it, it's sort of like, you know, and so... On the pro-Me Too left... On the pro Me Too left, right, we should be calling out, you know, and this is Bob Jensen in his porn book. I mean, I think he talks about, I think there's even a page or two where he talks about, you know, trying to have sex without your imagination being kind of infected with pornified imagery or or the sort of the way that American capitalism and patriarchy kind of narrates sexuality. So he's trying to sort of expunge from his brain all of those images and narratives and tropes while he's having sex. Um, and we can we can laugh at that, but that's like I don't but but that you can laugh at that, but that's no different, I think, functionally from when you're talking about racial microaggressions. What you're asking and you're talking about kind of you know rooting out racial bias and racial microaggressions. What you're asking people to do is to kind of go into their brain and and rewire it to not make all of the associations, the sort of pre-conscious, unconscious, visceral associations that it makes between, say, black men and criminality or violence or something like that, or all sorts of – I mean we probably have a million different 
prejudices or stereotypes about black people and Hispanic people and Asian people and all those things, right? Uh, and again, this back, back to my this is true, right? We just this is human psychology, right? That we, that we have all of these, we we our brains take all of these shortcuts, right? They have all these heuristics for sort of understanding and slicing up the world, and that's part of what prejudice and bias is. And when people are talking about microaggressions and strategies for like eliminating microaggressions, I mean, I think they're basically talking about the same thing. They're talking about, you know, a white person walking into a room with black people and not feeling, not having any of those things happen, expunging from their brain all of those things, which is, which is, seems perfectly parallel to Bob Jensen trying to expunge from his brain all of the things that culture, has implanted there about what it means for men and women to have sex with each other and what it means for women to be sexually attractive and men to be sexually attractive. So I actually don't think it's funny in that picture because it's an extreme version, but I actually think that's a lot of what people are talking about now is eliminating all of those things, you know, and, and which can't be done, which can't be done. And I think there are costs to doing it. And this is where the Hugo Schweitzer thing. Hugo Schweitzer was a for people who don't know, was a very, was a relatively well known, at least in feminist blogosphere circles, kind of male feminist and was pretty, you know, was was pretty of the kind of Bob Jensen brand of of feminism, of male feminism. And I think you and I didn't we even have like a kind of dialogue with him, or did we just critique him? I don't know. I've interacted with him. Um, and the big secret about, about Hugo Schweitzer is it turned out that he was kind of a, a kind of sexual exploiter, not, I think, assaulter. I think or, you can take, take the kind of out. He was pretty bad. Okay. Was a, was a kind of serial, serial sexual exploiter, exploiter was having relationships with his students, I think, and you know, all sorts of things like that, and, and, you know, which is almost a little too perfect, right? Because we, we said at the time, I think, that there's a danger to this kind of puritanical approach. Let me cut in for one second to say that I was laughing not out of disagreement with you, but at the fact that I had to think about Bob Jensen having sex just was cracking me. Like, I don't want to, I don't, I'm a prude maybe. I don't want to, I don't, you. Well, you know, so, so I think that like that's an extreme example, but I, I don't think it's extreme to say like, you know, there's reasons that in our contemporary culture, like the phrase Puritanism is like has a lot of negative connotations because we like have a we have a general awareness of the dangers of a sort of obsessive focus on, you know, n policing not just morality, but one's own thoughts. Right. I mean, that's part of what we're talking about when we're talking about Puritanism. And we can see that so clearly when we're talking about traditional Christian morality about sex and gender, right? We immediately like we just we just see how how toxic it can be and how harmful. But it's easy to see because those are not even those are not ideas we hold it anymore, even in a more relaxed way, right? That 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 sex is bad or that women shouldn't you know should be subordinate. Or so so now we can look at that obsessive focus on it and with in a, in a sort of comfortable light. But the orientation is the same, right? We have a different set of things that are sins now, um, and, and 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 the same orient obsessive focus on not just like policing behavior, but one's own thoughts, can produce some of the same distortions. I would think that it that Puritanism did when it was focused on traditional Christian moral, you know, Christian ideas of of morality. And so that's actually like it's actually a problem. Like it's actually potentially a problem. And I'm not going to say like. Hugo Schweitzer is the inevitable result of a puritanical male feminism, um, you know. But if if we as sort of, you know, good cultural liberals can sort of point to you know this endless procession of you know 
right-wing and evangelical preachers who turn out to be having sex with men in bathrooms and 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 make you know arguments about you know the inevitable you know how it's related to their their obsession with policing sexuality like it's the same kind of thing right like like having too strict and severe an orientation towards not just how people behave but how they think inside of themselves i think produces distortions uh, and i think we should be cognizant of that yeah and that's what i'm you know i'm I feel I have to admit lately I feel really lucky not to be a parent of anything but animals <laughs> um, because I it would be extremely hard right now. But what my hope and dream is is that we don't replace one set of orthodoxy with another, but that maybe like countries that I think puritanical is something that's it's well of course it's more American, but just as in other countries there's less teen alcoholism because teens start drinking and acclimatize right. to it sooner. That mother who found out her daughter was queer and then thought her daughter shouldn't be able to have sleepovers with other girls who's, who's a politically left, you know, and, and believes that her daughter should be queer just shouldn't have sex. <laughs> right. Yet. Um, that we can, we can start to have young people think about sexuality younger, not just about rules. Right. Not just rules they have to obey. Right. I, I, I agree, and I think probably— <laughs> Even though you don't know how you'll act <laughs> in real life. Even though we'll do our best. We'll do, we'll do our, we'll do our best. I will say I don't feel a lot of the, like, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying I'll be fantastic about this. I don't have a lot of the, like, I'm not going to be the, like, showing up to, you know, my, my daughter's, you know, first date with, you know, he shows up at the door and I'm holding a shotgun or something like that. Like, I don't have a lot of that kind of macho, like, sort of— thing going on, but that's very different from teaching your daughter or your son, for that matter, about like healthy sexuality and figuring out what the right um, – because I'm not sure it's total openness either. I'm not sure it's total like talk about sex in the way you do with your friends or your close friends or your spouse, but it's something better than what we've traditionally done. I guess I would just like you know where I would where I would like to see you is you know you told that story about and I and 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 it's interesting because that be my 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 visceral reaction to that intro just kept shifting pretty radically, right? Like there was like the, you know, I think the preamble to that where I just thought, oh, Jamie, stop kind of, you know, stop beating yourself over the head, you know, take off the hair shirt, like Jesus Christ, like, <laughs> you know, and then, but then you told that story and the story was like really good. Like that, that seemed like, like, a really great way of talking about these issues. And there was, and, and, and I guess it's like, I, I think, I don't know. I guess I wish you would do less apologizing um, and maybe have more faith in your own and confidence in your own perspective. Because it's like, on the one hand, you say, well, oh, great, all the world needs is two white guys talking about these things. But it's like, talking about where? On a podcast you produce that nobody is obligated to listen to? Like, you know, that, that you record and produce and put your, your time and sweat and love into? Like, right. Why the fuck not? Why the fuck? What's wrong with that? Like, nobody has to listen to it. You're not forcing it on anybody. Like, that's not something you should apologize for. Um, just that fact, you're not taking airtime away from anybody else. It's a good point. Yeah, uh, it, it would be it would be different, and we would have different considerations if 
it was like the New York Times podcast on gender or something like that. And it would be maybe a legitimate critique if like the two hosts of the New York Times podcast on sex were men, men or something <laughs> like that. Like, yeah, that's, that's a fair point. But like you're not you're not taking that space from anybody else. Like you're, you're doing your own thing. And I think you, I don't think you're doing anybody any good um, by beating yourself up or worrying too much about that. But of course you should stay open to criticism and, and, and constructive argument and, you know, and, and all sorts of things and, and have women on to tell you why you're a hundred percent wrong and why I'm a hundred percent wrong and, and, and so on. Thank thank you. That was a really lovely gift you just gave me because as much as it sounds obvious, you might have thought what you were saying should be obvious to me. I don't think about the fact that it's my little world. Nobody has to listen. I'm not taking anybody else's space. That That's very, very, uh, yeah, thanks. Good. <laughs> and for somebody, you know, for somebody to, to listen to it and say, and say, how dare you, or, or, or make some version of that critique just seems like an I improper application of that critique, right? It's like, we're not above criticism for anything we've just said, or any of the things you've said on your podcast. Like, you absolutely should be criticized if you say things wrong. But the fact that you're saying them because of who you are seems to me like a, a useless application of, you know, of uh, some kind of critique or or notion that another context would have a lot of truth to it. Um, and I, I mean, it doesn't necessarily sound like you've gotten that, but, but I think, I, I guess, you know, and I have my sort of maybe naive faith in the, the, the value and utility of people like you of goodwill and creative inclination doing, doing your thing and struggling creatively and that and that somehow that makes the world a better place um if it's done in the right spirit which i think you you do it and 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 is to some extent its own justification but 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 that i kind of think in some way and in some small way you're being a good ally by by wrestling with these things thanks but yeah we should also go out i mean you know but we should also go out and actually make things better however you do that i don't know how you do that but yeah, I don't know either. But we're, we're, we're but again, why I think this last 10 days is valuable is cuz so many more people are thinking about it than were 10 days ago. Sorry, Aziz, tough luck. That, that's really the way I feel. Sorry, irresponsible website gets a lot of clicks for this. Oh well, a bad website gets to be popular for I a while. I agree with you and I think I often fall into the error of thinking that like sort of successful progressive civil rights movements of the past were sort of, you know, a, a cleaner line than, you know, than they were. You know, we look back and we we pick out the moments that are most, you know, if if history has rendered a verdict on them that they were important and and just and noble, then we sort of construct that narrative out of just like the best moments of the of the of feminism, of civil rights, of gay rights, whatever, right? And we and we miss all of the stuff, all of the messy stuff that happened in between that where where you know, people were made bad mistakes and 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 some psychologically immature people use the language of civil rights to prosecute their own petty vendettas and all of this thing that we can lose sight of we can lose sight of that in the moment right and so i agree with you like uh, you know you know if they're casualties of of a mo of a movement that sort of ultimately you know makes the world a better place then i think we can all live with that i would just say in defense of people like me you know 
who always want to sort of nuance and complicate these things and find the point to push back and and is I think we I think we play a valuable role too. And I actually think it's not we're not necessarily sapping momentum. I think I think we might be you know, sharpening the critique or something like that, or that's possible at least. I think, I, I guess that's what I'd say is we don't know how this is all going to play out. And, and I, and I think it's a little bit glib of people, you know, the, the pro me too people in this case to just treat the Caitlin Flanagan's of the world as if it's like a zero sum game. And by critiquing them, she is sapping the power of the movement. I don't know that that's true. And I don't know that we'll, that we'll know that that's true for, for some time. I, I hope you're right, and I will try to act as if I believe that you're right, that we're doing some good. Okay. A friend of mine who had all the same opinions as Caitlin Flanagan wrote a wonderful comment on the social media, and it made me realize that if you, if we you and I could go back and line edit, I don't know who edited her, her piece, or most of the headlines for the pieces this past week, which are awful— yeah. Sensational. Her, it's her bitterness that, that, that made, like, so, so I, I saw people posting on Facebook, I'm glad the whole world hates this horrible article by this evil woman because she asked for that. She, she, she really, I think she, it was, it was, it was called a hate piece. And I think the, all the opinions she expressed could have been expressed without the hate and would have been better received. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I, I, I semi agree with that. I mean, she can be infuriating and I find her infuriating. Um, and I think like, you know, but I also think, you know, and this is, I, I don't know if I've said this to you before, but I mean, like, you know, this, this is where one of those things where, you know, to some extent we all pick our tribe and my tribe is like writers and artists. And so, yes, I can see why she's infuriating, but, but I also, I guess what I want to defend in Caitlin Flanagan, and it's not just this piece, it's a lot of these things, right, around gender, is she is somebody who is, who talks a lot about, you know, what she sees as the, the unintended consequences of, you know, all of this, all of these kind of rolling revolutions in gender relations and, you know, gender structures over the last 50 or 60 or 70 years and talks about how sometimes the outcomes they produce are not not desirable or not aligned with the ideals of the movement. I mean, she's just somebody who brings, you know, I mean, she talked about in that piece, right? Like one of the things that all of these articles in whatever the women's magazines were teaching them about, you know, protecting their virtue and their chastity was that they had the power to protect their virtue and chastity, right? And she's saying maybe, and, and, and she's saying it too confidently, but I think it's worth saying she's you know, proposing, maybe that produced a certain kind of empowerment and what we're doing now produces a certain kind of disempowerment. And there's not a lot of people who are doing what she's doing in that realm um, with as much kind of style as she does it as a writer. So the, the part of me where like writers are my tribe wants to defend her. And say like she's ultimately, even if she's infuriating, she's a use. She's she's adding, she's adding something useful to the conversation, and something that not a lot of other people 
would bring. And so again, to go back to the question, do we really want to have a conversation? Because if we really want to have a conversation, we should listen to what Caitlin Flanagan says and disagree with it where we think it's wrong. If we don't really want to have a conversation, we should just say, I'm glad to see everybody hates this horrible piece by this horrible person. (laughs) Yes, I I agree with that last part. Uh, I think she was, yeah. I don't know how hard she was trying to have a conversation, but that's another. No, I mean, oh, no. But but again, it's like, what do we want, right? Who do we want to be, right? Do we want to do? We, you know, there are people beyond the pale, but Caitlin Flanagan is not beyond the pale, right? There are people beyond the pale who you just want to be dismissive of, right? We don't want to spend a lot of time rebutting just out and out white supremacists, right? But it's like, do we do we want to? Should the you know, there were things in there to learn if you if if you paid attention. There were things in there to think about if you could sort of not get triggered, and I understand why people get triggered, and you're right, and it's, some of it is her fault for writing in a way that triggers people, but I just see that stuff, and I'm just like, I, you don't want a conversation. You want a lot of people to tell you you're right, right? That you want a lot of people to, you want a lot of people to tell you, to make you feel better. Like, that's not, so, so let's be clear about what you want, and that may have certain beneficial consequences, but it may not, but it's not about having a conversation. And this, circles nicely around to why you call me you called me with with concerns about your blood pressure uh because of the people who were just yeah i mean i couldn't handle it like i couldn't you know for a while i was what does that mean it means sometimes when i was having a bad day you know for another reason something at work something at home whatever um I was more vulnerable to getting triggered online. You know, I'd be reading something on Twitter, and then I would fire back a response, and then somebody would fire back a response. We'd all be angry at each other, and I'd, you know, be up till two in the morning, back and <laughs> forth on Facebook or Twitter, and just feel bad at the end of it, right? Have a bad night's sleep, feel misunderstood. Don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, I've said nasty things to people. They've said nasty things. I mean, I had a few. I mean, not many, but there were like one or two encounters where I mean, I feel bad for days. You know, I just like I criticized somebody on Facebook, and he just he just slaughtered me. Like, just, let's be frank. Like, I just you know, I brought a you know a knife to a gunfight or something like that. And I mean, that just you know, I just like, and I felt that for days. And I was into what. Do you mean he slaughtered you fairly, fairly or unfairly? But but in a but but in a in a profound like fairly but aggressively. I mean, he won the argument fairly by the you know by by logic and reason and evidence of all of those things. But I think it's but I think it was a profound act of aggression on his part. Like it, it wasn't like he shouldn't have been doing that either, right? Like he you know it's not healthy for him to be doing that, even if you play by the the rules to sort of take somebody to the woodshed like that is not a healthy psychologically healthy, constructive thing to do, right? Um, was this in this current conversation? No, no, no. This was, this was, this was six, or eight, six or eight months ago or something like that. You know, and so I would do that. I would also, you know, even, and then I kind of said to myself, all right, I'm going to stop commenting. I don't want to get into these things. I'm only going to like say I like somebody's picture of their baby or something. I'm only going to participate in, in happy things. But I kept reading all the political stuff, and it was just like, I was just, you know, I was getting pissed off all the time. I was getting irritated all the time. Oh, I can't believe that person said, oh, look at all those people liking that. Oh, look at, you know, and, and, and it was, you know, and, and, you know, and that Facebook algorithm is so, you know, such a evil genius thing, right? Because it, it gives you more of what you engage with, right? 
And so because I'm a, you know, I mean, we're all political these days, but on top of that, I write about politics and things like that, you know, so I, so my feed became just like nonstop, just people angry about shit. Um, and it made me like them less, right? Because people become, there's a lot of like virtue signaling. There's a lot of like just venting. It's not the, it's not the side of people that is most admirable most of the time. And so then I'm liking people. I'm, I'm starting to dislike people I actually like. Um, because the, what they're doing on Facebook, or at least what I'm seeing of what they're doing on Facebook is, is, is just strident and uncomplicated and unnuanced and seems about their own stuff and, and all of these things. And it's just like, I'm not saying it's impossible for somebody to have a healthy existence in these spaces. Um, I'm sure it is possible for some people to have a healthy existence in these spaces. I don't know what the percentages are. I think they're a lot higher than most people would admit. I think there's a lot of people whose relationship to it is pretty unhealthy and they wouldn't acknowledge it. Oh, yeah. And then I think there's a lot of people who would acknowledge it but kind of can't get out of it. Um, and so – Well, I, I fell back in hard last week, and I haven't been doing much commenting it's such a different feeling that I know. It's such a different feeling that I get from talking to you about this stuff. Is all I was going to say. It feels different. Likewise, there's a part of me that has always. Well, I'm going to say this here because I've never been able to do it in real life. I really want to criticize people for posting photos of their babies, <laughs> and I'm I, you get sick of it. But but you definitely can't do that. But I did it. There it is, people. You friends with babies, come on, just just maybe you know. Back off a little. It's funny because that was the that was my uh, original way in which I felt like Facebook made me unhappy, which is you see well, – I'm not sure if this is exactly what you're saying. But you see the curated version of people's lives, right? this beautifully curated version of people's lives, and then it makes you feel bad about your own life by, by comparison because you know how complicated and not, you know, not idyllic your own life is. Um, those seem, those seem like long gone days. <laughs> you know, like that was – Yeah, I, that's part of it. It's it, it's part of it, and and the part that you have to like pictures of babies, like I'm forced to click like or pretend I wasn't online. But everybody knows I'm always online. But but friends who have dogs and cats, you guys go ahead because I love pictures of dogs and cats. I don't dislike pictures of dogs and cats. I just kind of gloss over, you know, you know, my eyes glaze over. What I've been doing recently is uh, this. I am pretty happy. Like there's a certain kind of conversation that what did I so I don't. Um, I posted something the other day. I, was, I, I got like this spot at the parking garage where I work that I've always coveted um, because it's like <laughs> it's, this, it's this weird spot okay. that like I call it the deep spot. It goes back about like 20 feet or something, but it has like these – it's like concrete walls on all sides. It's just like this little like concrete pop pocket that goes back forever, and it just it's like cozy and in, and enclosed. You know, and I just nice. always, but 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 they they're snatched up, right? Like, and so I, I never like I was here one day when it was like I think it was like a vacation day or something, but I had to come in or whatever, and I just I got the deep spot, and then I took a picture of it. <laughs> you know, I took a picture of it, I put it up on Facebook, and I tagged all the people who I knew just from my life would appreciate that. Like, it's particularly I have some old friends and family where it was just the type of thing we joked about. Like, we always joked about, you know, the 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 restaurant in the food court at the mall that had the best soda mixture in its like fountain machine and just like stupid shit like that right and I just like knew those guys would and it, we just there was just this long thread with all of these people from different different parts of my life about like 
the deep spot and other, you know, other things and inside jokes. And it's like, that's what this is for, right? That's, that makes me happy. That feels like connected. There are all these like surprising where you have your like grade school friend and, you know, replying to a comment from, you know, somebody you work with now. And it's all of these, all the things about Facebook that we liked when we first started and then it seemed great. But I feel like you have to be so intentional about cultivating that. And I feel like in this past year, since Trump, I've been trying really hard to put just pleasant things up <laughs> as much as I put right. anything unpleasant. And and I, I, I've had at least once people take me to like, how can you be caring about the Celtics at a time like this? And I'm like, okay, just, I, I think I probably wrote someone a note. So just don't follow me. It's okay. Because yes, or someone was very critical of someone for writing about video games, you know, I'm like people need their escapes. Good therapy. Good therapy this was. Right. I agree. I'm speaking like Yoda. I don't know why. Well, we need to talk about these things, right? Like they are like in our brains. And it's like that's the healthy impulse, I think, that some of these platforms kind of end up distorting. Like we need to – it's useful and constructive to talk about them and process them. I just think there's certain spaces that are better than others. And, you, and your, space is, your space is the best, Jimmy. <laughs> oh, thanks, Dan. It's yours whenever you want to come talk about something. All right. We'll check in periodically. We'll have a, yeah, our, our, our masculinity and discontents occasional episode. Excellent. All right. Be well. Do you want to ask the question? Do you want to ask the question? Uh, wait. What's the question? The Mark Marin question. Oh, no. Are we good? <laughs> yeah, we're good. <laughs> All right. Take care, man. All right. Bye. Bye. Okay. I think it's fair to say that if you've stuck around this long, you at least find this somewhat interesting, and you may even like it. If you like this show, and you want me to be able to keep doing it, and maybe you've even noticed that recently we went from three episodes a month down to two, because there's just no time between paying the rent. I'd love to do more. So, please consider donating. There are a couple ways to do that. One is by going to patreon.com slash one five minutes Jamie Berger. And another is to PayPal 15 minutes Jamie Berger at gmail.com. And I'll have links to both of those in the show notes for today's show, along with links to a great number of people, places, and things Dan and I talked about. And you can find those over on 15minutesjamieberger.com. That's 1-5-M-I-N-U-T-E-S-J-A-M-I-E-B-E-R-G-E-R.com. Where you can also write with some feedback about today's show. And if you like, even get it read on this very podcast. Rest in peace, radio legend, inspiration, Joe Frank. Ed Patnode is the engineer. Christian Kandari made our theme song. This is 15 Minutes. I'm... Jamie Berger.